the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 374 for Wednesday, January 11th, 2012. Hey, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips. We share some answers and some tips of our own, and together we all try and learn at least one thing new about the Mac and other Apple and fun products. Here in Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Oh, Las Vegas, I bet you're at CES. I am at CES. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's CES. So it's uh, it's mayhem. Vegas is bursting at the seams, but there's some cool stuff here. So, so you know, there's a reason to be here. Well, I'm but. sure you and the uh, maybe I'll join you next year. Uh, you and the rest of the TMO team uh, will report on anything relevant. Though, what did I? I saw some statistic. It's like 13 football fields equivalent of uh, exhibit space. I'll buy that. It spans yeah. multiple hotels, right? Yeah, I mean, it's mostly all in the Vegas Convention Center. Oh, is, oh, oh, okay. But it, it does spill over into the Venetian and, and elsewhere. So, Yeah. John, I have to ask you a question. Are, are you recording this? Yep. Okay, good. Because uh, in case my mobile rig here fails us in some way, it's good to have a backup. It's good to have a backup for everything you do. Absolutely. Yeah. So... uh you know, a couple of years ago when I was here at CES, John, I saw uh, 3D TV for the first time, and pretty much since that, since that moment, my feeling has been, uh, great job, you guys figured out how to do this, please don't ever put it in my living room. Right. Well, because it's, it's, it's crazy. Why would I want to have to put on glasses to watch a movie and all that? Well, yesterday, I finally understood why you might want it, and it's not for television. It's really not even for movies, albeit a couple. You know, if if the movie is really like well done with 3D, perhaps, but certainly for a drama or even a comedy or whatever, I don't need to be donning 3D glasses and and doing all that. But for video games, it's freaking awesome. It's perfect. So so that would be the reason that uh, that people are going to go ahead and get these things. That's my feeling on it. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I've seen some deployments where, yeah, it's special glasses and with uh, most more on the PC side than the uh, the Mac side. No, uh, I mean uh, as for your TV, you, you hook up your Xbox or whatever to uh, oh. to to this 3D TV and play 3D games, and it's awesome. So, no, that that I totally get. And and so, you know, so the way it works is is the glasses are filtering. There's two signals coming in, right? It's essentially a stereo image. And the glasses are filtering one out of one eye and one out of the other eye. And so you get this stereo image, and, and then it, your brain translates that into 3D, right? Well, you know, sometimes you're playing a video game, and the screen is split so that, you know, if you and I were playing a game together, maybe a race car game or something, John, you could see your car on the top, and I'd see my car on the bottom. And that's okay, but it, I mean, it's, it's actually not that okay. It kind of stinks. Well... They got smart. And if you send a top and bottom image to a 3D TV and tell it to mix top and bottom, which is how 3D often works, 
And then you have glasses where instead of the, you having a lens that blocks the right side and a lens that blocks the left side, if you make special glasses where both eyes block left and, both, and, and for the other person, both eyes block right, you, get a 2D, you each get a 2D image out of the same television that's completely different from what the other guy's seeing. So you can do split screen games full screen with two players. So that was pretty cool. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I've, I've seen some PC deployments, so I, I think I grok what you're talking about. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, so, so I can see that. I, I, I now see, you know, 3D TV. But, you know. Um, but not for TV. So. I can talk about a couple other things I saw here before we get into the show, John. Was there anything you saw reported on from the, uh, from the outside world that you were curious about? Um, what am I seeing? 802.11an, I guess will be the next, next step in, uh, Wi-Fi. Yep. Okay. I don't know if, uh, how, how real that is or if anybody's demonstrating anything, but I think it's in the, uh, like 10 times the speed of what you can get now, potentially. So. Right. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. It's all theoretical. And that's part of the problem with CES is there's so many things here. It's a weird show to cover as press, frankly, uh, and I realize a lot of people are focused on the press, but just as many, if not more, people are focused on the big, you know, the buyers, right, the, trying to get their stuff in Best Buy and all this other stuff. So those people are readily talking about stuff that's total vaporware, trying to convince these people that, yeah, you should work with us. So uh, so it's tough, but uh, – and I, and I think that 802.11an, at least from what I've seen here, I haven't honestly haven't read any of the other coverage of it, so perhaps I just haven't seen any real-world deployments of it here yet, but it mm. looks like vaporware at the moment. But I think it'll get there. That That's one that probably will come to fruition. Yeah, well, it's a standard. Right, I, exactly. I'm, I'm sure people have done it in the lab. Um, yeah, and you're talking vaporware. I heard a particular vendor uh, got caught. Uh, Uh-oh. You didn't hear about this? No, I know. Well, a particular vendor that makes uh, graphic chipsets, uh, not one of the bigger players. Uh, Who was it? Do you remember? Intel. Okay. I think it was CES or some recent show where some Intel guy got caught playing a video showing their uh, graphic card performance. He was pretending or, or trying to give the... Most people felt he was trying to give the impression he was playing a game uh, live. And someone noticed the VLC... Uh, control panel when he started to uh <laughs> demonstrate this and it's like dude that's bad uh, yeah um and then a lot like i think you showed me is some you know i mean they had you know tablets where either they'd you know yell at you if you took a picture of it or it'd be like a cardboard cutout and it's like well uh okay <laughs> yeah we're not seeing that this year uh good okay at least you got something you can you can get your hands touch. on and use yeah for the most part yeah i mean some people do have mock-ups but again it's you know it's not to bamboozle the press it's to well it's to bamboozle media or not it's to bamboozle you know the buyers all right but some stuff yeah. that is real what about thunderbolt any thunderbolt uh, there's been a lot of discussion of, of thunderbolt here uh, you know I, I think we'll start seeing some some thunderbolt like some external drive enclosures that that support thunderbolt i think in the next three months we're going to see a, like the the first big wave of those hit the market. And we'll see. People are saying that, you know, the bottlenecks inside the Mac uh, are alleviated when you do that. And 
so you're getting full speed out of these SSDs and stuff. So we'll have to see. That'll be interesting. Um, let's see. I'm uh, I'm looking at a couple of things here. Oh, there was one thing we reported on at TMO. It's it's really cool. Uh, it's this company that will take your uh, your iPhone or really any electronics device and they put it through a, a process where they code it and make it waterproof, entirely waterproof. Uh, it's called Liquipel, uh, they, 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 it, and they just do this. You have to send your, your device to them, uh, and it's 60 bu- 59 bucks plus shipping, and they, can, you know, they just waterproof it and then send it back to you, which is pretty cool. They've got phones that are just dropping in water, and you pick it up and use it, and it's totally fine. So that's pretty cool. It would be nice if manufacturers could find a way to start doing this, and perhaps eventually they will. I'm looking looking through my notes here, John. There's there's one thing I want to talk about, but I I want to save that till last. Um, Ghostphero.com has this little ball, and the ball is controllable from your iPod or I, iPhone or whatever. It's oh yes, it's Wi-Fi. I, I saw this. It has a camera in it? No. No. Oh. No, it's oh, just... Oh, you have a different... Oh, you saw a different one then. Yeah, yeah I saw one at a, at a show last year in uh, okay. in Manhattan. There was a ball. Yeah, so the same thing. It was it was a glowing ball, and you could uh, you could control it yeah. with your uh, eye device. I don't think it has a camera in it. Maybe it... You know, I think... Yeah. Who, who, who are they again? GoSphero.com. And, uh, and so it's cool. Not only... Does the, the your iPhone control the ball, and you can roll it around, and it it's really responsive. Uh, you know, you get sort of this faux joystick on the app on your phone, and then you just roll the ball around. Well, nope, th- this is the same one. Okay, I don't. Think yes, they're it showing it. It has a it. it has a camera, but the fun part is uh, so what they were suggesting is you can use it to terrorize your cat. <laughs> okay. Apparently, some some are fascinated by the device, and some are terrified of it. But yeah. Okay. Guess Sphero. Yeah, I forget. It was like one fifty or something, yeah. or one ninety nine or something. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Are you sure it has a camera? Uh, yeah. Okay. If you go to their webpage and you click on apps, yeah, Sphero Cam. It's one of the apps they offer. Oh, yeah. there it is, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure enough. Oh, that's cool. They weren't showing that off. Um, but one thing is that not only can you control the ball with your iPhone, but if the app's written right, you can control your iPhone from the ball. Uh, they had this game. It was sort of like a, uh, you know, Galaxian style game. And you use the ball to roll your, your little ship back and forth. And then you shoot with your, so with your, uh, you know, by tapping the screen on your phone. So that part was pretty cool. Uh, which is fun. For those of you into radar detectors, both Cobra and Escort are, uh, have models now that link with an app on your iPhone or iPad and they're doing a lot of crowdsourcing and stuff for, you know, if, if one person runs into uh, laser, it actually sends that up to the cloud and then warns other drivers in the area. So that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, it does geotagging and all that. Lastly, I think lastly, John. So, you know, I'm a big fan of custom fit ear molds for your earphones. But the problem is, you have to, to get these, you have to go to the audiologist 
that's going to cost you, you know, somewhere probably in the 50 to a hundred dollar range just to get impressions of your ears made. Then you have to send these off to the manufacturer and that's good. And then, you know, the molds, they have to custom make these things for you. So the cost is, you know, north of 300 bucks and could be as high as a thousand or even more. Well, no longer. A company uh, called Videra is making something called shark fin. And I believe it's available on Amazon today. And what you do is you take your, uh, your existing earbuds that you like, your in-earbuds, and they give you, uh, it, with the kit, is two pieces of silicone. And you take it out of the package, you fit your earbud into the silicone, and then you take this silicone and put it in your ear, essentially to make a mold of your ear. But after about three minutes, it hardens to the point where it is now your your mold and you can take it off if you want you know you're not ruining your earbuds with this and you've got this totally custom fit thing that you just made at home and they're smart because they put a couple of them in the box because they know you're probably going to screw it up the first time but here's the beautiful thing it's five bucks so you can totally afford to screw it up um so check those out if you're ever into into custom fit ear molds on airplanes, they're awesome because they block out so much more sound. Uh, so for five bucks, I highly recommend it. I haven't tried them yet, but I, I'm going to. In fact, I've, I've got it on my list for when we're done with the show, I'm going to go place my order. Because for five bucks, why not? So that's, that's my story, John. All right. Anything else about CES that you wanted to know? Since I'm here and, you know, all that. No, I'll... I'll- I'll watch Mac Observer. Awesome. Yeah, Jeff and John, uh, Jeff and uh, Brian have been doing a bang-up job. Uh, I want to talk about our first sponsor, John, and that is Barebones Software at barebones.com with BB Edit. BB Edit is, well, it's my favorite text editor, uh, and it could be yours too. Highly worth checking out. So go to barebones.com and download it. What you're going to find is no matter what you're editing with this, uh, it stays in regular text mode. There's no crazy formatting. Uh, It's perfect for editing any kind of code, HTML, uh, CSS, JavaScript, C, C++. It really, any, any language you can think of from simple stuff to really complex stuff and BB edit is right there for you. Uh, It, it will highlight, code but it's not actually changing the code it's not changing your text file when it's doing all this highlighting it's doing it on the fly so it figures out where your functions are and figures out uh, you know what code is related to other code and puts it all together in a really interesting and and easy to use way it's very intuitive and then it's also got some other stuff if you ever wanted to compare two text files uh, this will let you do that and it'll show you the differences line by line and even character by character it puts them up next to each other and highlights them as you go through. Really handy for looking to see what's changed or uh, you know, what you need to edit. Very, very cool. Uh, you can download it from barebones.com, of course. And it's free for the, the trial. Uh, and the price has come down so much in the last year. This used to be a $200 piece of software. And now it's only 50 bucks. 
If you own a previous version, it's only 40 bucks. So go ahead and check it out. Uh, my guess is you're going to love it if you have any need to edit text at all. And for 50 bucks, you can't go wrong. So check it out at barebones.com. All right, John. Should we move on to uh, should we move on to Daniel here? Yes. All right. I got to get the show up here. This is this is where it gets a little crazy doing this from the road. But we will get there. No stories to tell him this week, John. You always come in with some good tale of woe. Uh, well, I got one later. That okay. I can talk about. Right. <laughs> That's cool. No, it's right. not. It's terrible. But no, I fixed it. But no, we got it on the agenda. I was mm-hmm. uh, wrestling with uh, Aperture. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, we'll make sure we get to that. All right. So, now that I've pulled this up, Daniel writes, I've got an iPad 2 and two iMacs. I have a Canon printer that's not airport AirPrint compatible. I have a Linksys wireless router that provides the network that all this works on. I've been testing Printopia's app for printing from an iPad to a non-AirPrint printer, and I like it a lot. It allows printing to my printer, the Mac, or Evernote, or even Dropbox on my Mac. The one thing is that it's dependent on an install on the Mac that, or on an app on the Mac that is installed on my user account. When I'm logged into the Mac, the print feature works because the app is running in the background. When I'm not logged in, of course, the app's not running, and it doesn't work. On my iMac, I have multiple user accounts set up for myself, my wife, my son, etc. Our general practice is to log out after each use. I'm looking for a way to have a service like Printopia is running and available even if I'm logged out. One thought I had was that if I had a remote access app, I could access the iMac from my iPad, log in remotely, use the print services, and then log back out. I've purchased remote access apps from Splashtop, and it behaves the same way. It requires a user to be logged in in order for the app on the iMac to be running that allows me to log in. I prefer to be able to get to the login screen and choose to log in instead of having to already be logged in. Okay. So uh, there's two answers to this question, John, and, and both of them are, are relevant not just for Dan but for, for everyone. First and foremost, if you have an app, in in this situation, I get where you want to log in and log out, but this is a great place. I do do this on one of the machines at home. Set up an always logged in account Uh, that's not yours, it's not your wife's, it's not your kid's. It's just an account to run Printopia and anything else that needs to be running on the computer and have this auto log in when you log in and then don't log it out, just go back to the login screen. And once you do that once, then you can log in and out of your own accounts and still be fine. And yes, it will use up some RAM, but as long as you're not also running, you know, Safari and Word and everything else inside this one little always logged in account, that'll probably work out okay for you. And it'll save you a lot of headache of having to do the next thing that we're going to talk about doing, which of course involves you logging in, turning on the printopia, printing, quitting, logging out, you know, that whole, that whole deal. That sound, that sound reasonable to you, John? Sure. All right. I think John needs his coffee today. It's worth noting, you know, that for me, it's 6.39 a.m. No. Is it? Yeah, 6.39. That would make it, uh, 9.39 for you, my friend. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, usually not a morning person. No, I've had my coffee. It'll kick in. Okay. Oh, so by the end of the show, we're going to be doing everything we can to, uh, to, to, keep, to, to hold the reins back, aren't we? <laughs> All right. Yeah. So the, for, the, for the second part of this, though, to answer your specific question, how do you control a Mac from an iOS device and get to the login screen? And, of course, to do that, something needs to be running all the time on the Mac, whether or not you're logged in, which means it needs to be running as root. Now, I'm sure we could dig and find some third-party services that do this, but you don't have to. It's already built into your iMac and to Mac OS X in general uh, as part of what's called VNC. Now, it's also built in for Apple Remote Access, but to my knowledge, there's no iOS apps that connect to Apple Remote Access. Am I, am I right about that, John? Not that I know of. Okay. And yeah, uh, the, the, I mean, the option app- that, that I'm going to talk about in a moment is also VNC-based, so I think that's, okay. that's the best way to go. Okay, so uh, you have to turn this on, just like you would have to turn on anything, but once you turn it on, if the computer is powered up, and powered up properly, uh, then uh, this this will work. So th- the first thing to do is to turn on uh, remote management. So go into system preferences, and then go to sharing, and then check the box for remote management. This will allow you to connect with Apple Remote Desktop. But as we just said, that doesn't exist on the iPad, so you're going to need something else. While you're there on that same screen, click on the little button that says computer settings dot dot dot. Uh, Inside that, check the little box that says VNC viewers may control screen with password. And for the the love of all that is good and pure, please put a password in here. Because otherwise, you've just opened up your computer to anyone that can connect to it with a VNC client. And that's bad. So put a password in, hit OK. And uh, and now the computer's set up, and whether or not you're logged in, any VNC client at this point will allow you to connect to it. The one I use on the on iOS is called ISSH. Now, for those of you that know your acronyms, you know that this means that it can also do secure terminal sessions, uh, but it does have a great VNC client in it, and it works really well. I use it all the time. Uh, and I found it. I found it to work good. I'm sure there are others, and and perhaps that's what you're going to tell us about. But uh, but that's what works for me, and and it does exactly what you're looking for, Dan. Because it will, when you log in, it brings you to the login screen, and that's what you want. John. Yes. yes. So the the what I have set up. So number one, I don't have remote management checked. So okay. what I do is, so the setup in my place. Um, so I have the Mac Mini, which I do the podcasting on. Right. The only things. Well, I have two things turned on here in my sharing. So I have screen sharing activated and file sharing activated. I don't have remote management on. Okay. That- Nor do I think I need to. Just, just want to clarify because I, I, I thought you were suggesting you need that to be on. You, you certainly do to use ARD. Yeah, that's right. No, you're right. And, I, and because I use ARD on my Macs at home, I turn remote management on. But you're right. that You could do the same thing with screen sharing checked and the screen sharing uh, dialogue has the same computer settings dot 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 button that I discussed in uh, previously. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
and the cool thing, and, and then I'll have my mini set up to sleep. So normally this machine is on, but it's sleeping. But the cool thing is that even if it's sleeping, it will um, let its presence be known on the network and that you can see it in, in uh, both the, you know, another Mac can see it or a VNC app. And the one that I like to use here, and we'll, we'll link to it, but I actually have one on my iPhone here called Mocha VNC Lite. And the cool thing is when you're setting it up, uh, without going into gory details about the setup here, but if you click, I think it's configure, it will scour or just look on your network, and if it sees anybody advertising VNC, it'll put it on the list. So I actually oh, wow. just clicked on configure, and, and it's like, oh, Mac Mini, or, or you know whatever I call it, JV Mac Mini. Right. And I'm like, okay, connect to that, filled in a few things, like like you suggest, that I had to fill in username and password. You know, of course, password protected, or as you said, anybody can control your computer. Wait, and then you, I get a, you uh, fill in you know, a little tiny version. Uh, now, navigating is kind of a challenge because, of course, you don't really have a, a well, you have a pointing device in a sense. But um, but that, that's the one challenge of controlling something with an iDevice is you, uh, you're using a touchscreen instead of a, you know, something else like a trackball or, or a mouse. So it, it, you, can, you can get around. Okay, that's cool. But uh, that's now, the app th- that I use, and, and John, they have a light version. Huh? Okay, I, sorry. I know we, we were out of sync there for a second. I just wanted to make sure that our Skype connection was alive. Keep going. Don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, so Mocha VNC Lite, they have two versions. The, the, the one, uh, Mocha VNC Lite, I find is sufficient, and that's free. And then they have a, uh, a version that, that's a pay version. And uh, I haven't, not to take money out of them, <laughs> away from them, but I haven't. Uh, found a reason. Uh, my my needs are pretty basic, so I find that the free version works. But we'll link to both of those. So uh, cool. So yeah, it's nice that Apple's implementation uses a standards based uh, the thing called VNC. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Now I, I wanted to make note of something. You said that you had to enter username and password into Mocha VNC. It, as far as I know, VNC didn't use usernames. It only uses a password, and it's a single password. So, you know. Uh, it's you know there's no separate user accounts there is there are of course once you log in with vnc uh you can then you'll see your screen and you can choose which user you want to log in as but to take control of the screen uh it is one password is that is that not right oh let me verify that here okay no i mean even now if i'm logging in from my mac it's asking for a username and password well, that's different though, because your Mac's not using okay. VNC. Your Mac's using that that different screen sharing protocol. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure VNC is just going to ask you for a password. Okay, because now when I was configuring it, th- there was a section saying, "Hey, if you want to provide your your username and password." So, so I think it's using a huh a, a enhanced protocol to to communicate with another because it it. it I don't have it in front of me here, but yeah. you know, when I say configure Mac Mini, it's like IP address, server port. Oh, Mac OS 10 Lion sign-on. Yeah, so, so it apparently knows. Oh, really? That's pretty so apparently, cool. Apparently, even the light version, so it knows the uh, an enhanced protocol you can use to connect to another Mac. Okay, so it's probably using... That's even better than what I'm doing here. That um, What that's using with Lion... So, they did something really cool with VNC, uh, and I, I didn't realize that third-party apps could tap into this, but, but why not? Uh, previously, with Snow Leopard, if you took control of your Mac screen, you got 
your Mac, whatever was on your screen. So for example, if John and I shared a computer and John was at the computer logged in and I VNC'd in or I, you know, remote accessed in, I saw what John saw. And if I did anything with the computer, John would see me moving. And so we'd essentially be sharing or fighting for control of the machine, right? With Lion, you get the option. When you log in, it says, okay, it gets your user account. So that's why it's asking you for that. Uh, and then it'll say, okay, do you want to see, it'll say, you know, John Braun's logged in. Do you want to see his session or do you want to start your own parallel session and you can control the same machine, but John and I wouldn't be, we wouldn't be fighting with each other. I'd be logged into my account. He'd be logged into his account. And other than competing for system resources like CPU and disk, we would not notice each other's presence on the machine. And that's actually really cool. And that's a, that's new in Lions. I didn't realize Mocha VNC did that. That's awesome. I got to check that out. Okay. I'll have to try that because the machine that I'm logging into is not a Lion machine. Okay. All right. So yeah. it asks for that, but it, but it's not doing it. Yeah, it's because not, yeah. it gave me, as, as you said, it was giving me a single session. Okay. All right. I'll have to try it on my Lion machine. Yeah. But well, yeah, here's it's, a, the, it's a nice little client. Here's the interesting thing. If you're going to go in for John or for anybody that's going to test that, if the logged in user so if i'm logged into that machine and then i walk away and i would log in with you know whatever client supported this mocha vnc it would not give me that option because it would say ah you're dave hamilton uh you're logging into dave hamilton's account you want your account it's not going to create a sec a separate instance of my account it's just going to show it to me but if the logged in user is different then the one or the, the, the frontmost user is different from the one that I'm logging in as, then it will allow me that parallel session. So when you're testing, John, you're going to have to set up different user accounts just to see if it works. Make sense? Got it. Yeah, that's cool. And that is a cool part of Lion in, in terms of the remote access. All right. Let's go to Dave, shall we? This is, well, it's all geeky. It's good stuff. Uh, so Dave writes, shortly after coming out, I did a fresh install of Lion and all went well. I created two accounts, my main user account and a test account, which I intended to use for troubleshooting. I also elected to use Lion's updated file vault to hold disk encryption, and it all still went well. A few weeks later, I followed some of your sage advice and installed an OWC SSD drive in my optical bay putting the OS and applications on the SSD and my data on the original hard drive. And still all went well. Well, sort of. Trying to log into my main user account failed. I'd get 30 seconds of the spinning gear, followed by an error message in the form of, you are unable to log into the user account Dave, because his name's Dave, uh, at the time. Login failed because an error occurred. Oddly enough, I discovered that if I first logged into and then immediately out of the test account, I could subsequently log into my main user account without fail. A little web searching suggested that this is happening because the disk encryption on the SS on the hard drive. Uh, so I attempted to turn off FileVault, but now the security and privacy settings only show the FileVault options for the SSD, which is not encrypted. So I can find no way to turn off FileVault on the hard drive. Okay, so what happened here is macOS 10 believed macOS 10 and the actual state of encryption are out of sync. Mac OS 10 uh, encrypted his boot drive, 
which at the time was his hard drive, and probably somewhere set a flag that, okay, that's what's encrypted. And then he changed that, but never unencrypted the drive first. So now he's got an encrypt, his boot drive is unencrypted, and his, uh, his data drive uh, is encrypted, and OS X won't let him mess with that. So the question is, how do we manipulate File Vault and specifically the whole disk encryption if, uh, if, if, there's, if, if the OS, at least in terms of the system preference uh, pane, doesn't know it? And there's a couple ways to do this, John. So the first is disk utility. If you go into disk utility, uh, and you so disk utility is in applications utilities, and you highlight the disk, not, uh, sorry, highlight the volume, not the disk. So the volume, which is one step lower and indented from the disk, and then go to the file menu, you will see an option to turn off encryption. And that, uh, in many cases, will work. Uh, in Dave's case, actually, it did not. And what you need to do is go to the command line and use the disk util commands. Uh, and we'll point to a, uh, an article that explains some of this because, frankly, it's far more than is worth getting into in an audible sense. But uh, we'll point you to an article that explains how to find and tell OS X to either encrypt or decrypt a container that's, uh, that's out there. So, so that's the magic answer. Are you doing File Vault yet, John? Mm, not yet. Our show is, at least my recording of our show, is fully encrypted because File Vault is on, I believe it's on on my MacBook Air. I should yeah, I'll, I'll give it a whirl at some point. Yeah, it's, I've done it on machines with, with spindle hard drives and with, obviously, SSDs, and I've noticed absolutely no performance difference. Although... Uh, it is worth noting, I believe the i7 processors have hardware uh, encryption in them, right? Isn't that right? Isn't that one of the differences between the i5 and the i7? So uh, it doesn't really? have... Huh. Yeah, yeah. It's got AES built into the processor. So, uh, so it, you know, you're not, you're not actually crunching yeah, in that sense. That. Yeah, yeah, I just did a search. Intel AES standard instructions. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice. which is great for exactly this because it's totally hardware and you're not messing around with, with actually crunching CPU cycles in that sense to, to do it in software. So, you know, there you go. All right. Let's go to Darren, shall we, John? Yeah, this is an odd one. I think so. I'm curious to see where we go with this. All right, Darren, let's see if we can make this work. Hello, John and Dave. This is Darren from Lincoln in England. Hello. And I've got this annoying problem. I've just bought a brand new iMac i5, I think it is, to replace my three-year-old MacBook Pro. And the first thing I ever do when I get a new Mac is launch Handbrake and have a look at the encoding times. And strangely, on my brand new iMac, the encoding time for a DVD is probably an hour longer than my three-year-old MacBook. Interestingly, if I just load an AVI into Handbrake and encode that, 
it's lightning fast perfect it's just the it's the bit where it rips the dvd um incredibly slow four or five times slower than a three-year-old macbook any ideas what that would be so that's interesting it it if we break this down john it sounds like his cpu uh is working fine because the uh because handbrake when when reading from when reading from and writing to the hard drive uh is able to to crank right and and go fast but when reading from the dvd drive it does not go fast so that tells me maybe a problem with the dvd drive that's where i was going to go with this the only thing i could imagine i didn't mention the specific uh, os that he's using i'm going to assume he's on lion but if not uh the, the only thing i could imagine is running an older version of handbrake like maybe a, a power pc version on an older uh you know what i'm saying a non-universal version on a on an older os uh could you know give you lower but, but yeah i'm i'm leaning towards the dvd now i looked this up and you know at least on my macbook pro the dvd drive in, is a 8x dvd drive and i looked up the latest iMacs, and those are also 8x so yeah, I, I would agree that you know that may be the bottleneck. Now it's a brand new machine. I mean, I, I've seen some issues, you know, with dirty lenses and stuff. And I did have a problem on my MacBook where it wasn't reading certain discs. I think dual layer, and I ran the the lens cleaner, and then everything was great. So I think there may be a problem with that drive because yeah, they're, I, they're but they're equivalent. They're both eight X drives, so they should be reading at the at the same speed. One, I guess, one way to check would be pull up Activity Monitor or your favorite CPU monitor. And watch it while you're doing uh, the encode from the DVD. Now, it may still show that it's operating at 100, percent but that would only be because that would it would then, of course, be possibly lying to you. So, if you see it at 100, percent that doesn't mean that it's actually at 100. Uh, percent But if you see it at less than 100, percent then that tells you that you're not getting enough data fast enough to. Uh, to you know, let Handbrake do its thing. Now, the reason it might show 100% even if it's not is that the CPU might be in what's called an I.O. wait state where uh, it's actually busy because it's waiting for data from whatever I.O. device, in this case, the, the DVD drive. Um, so, so Activity Monitor may or may not give you an indication as to how busy the CPUs really are. You know, the other thing that just occurred to me, and this is something I noticed on my Mini. I don't know if this is a problem on the iMac. Yep. All right. If you go into your, um, if you go into the system profiler, yep. and then dig in here on SATA, it'll show you the negotiated link speed. Oh. I'm wondering if it's. Uh, I'm wondering if that could be it, because actually, what, what kind of has me a little bit concerned here, looking on on my on the Mini here. That I'm looking, and it's using an NVIDIA MP, MCP89, some sort of SATA controller, and, and the negotiated link speed for both the uh, hard drive and the uh, DVD drive is 1.5 gigabits. Okay, right. Which I'm assuming that they just use lower end parts here. Now that still shouldn't. I mean, 1.5 gigabits. You know, that still should. Uh, <laughs> I think I can't do off the top of my head. I mean, that's is that 8x? Uh, I, I don't know what the uh, 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 I think it's faster than 8x. Yeah. Okay, so that that shouldn't be an issue then. Yeah. Even if it is at, at 1.5 gigabits. Right. All right. Right. 
Wonky Drive, I guess. Is that would be my guess. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, either bring it, of course, bringing it to the Apple store and telling them you need to benchmark my DVD drive because it's not going fast enough uh, may be an interesting conversation to have. But, uh, but you know, it's it, it's right. It's the right conversation to have. They might just, I don't know that they would have a way to do that. I guess they probably would. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I could, other thing I could think of, uh, no, this, uh, I don't know if this would help. I mean, you could look, you could use something like iStat menus, and I think that'll show you the the, the raw throughput. That though, you're, if oh. you're observing it slower, I don't know if that would necessarily give you much. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's uh. Let's move down the. Actually, I want to tell you about our second sponsor which is Gazelle at gazelle.com. This time of year is perfect for Gazelle because what they do is they give you cash for pretty much any electronics that you have that you don't use anymore, at least anything that's of any value. Your cell phone from five years ago? No. Your old iPhone? Definitely yes. Your old uh, MacBook? Yes. Uh, They are... They have a great website. It's so much fun to dig around because it's so easy to get between gazelle.com and the dollar sign. And that's what we all like. So go to gazelle.com and right there on the homepage, just type in what you've got. And, uh, you know, you can just, I mean, you can be pretty generic about it. You could type in iPhone and then it's going to ask you some questions. What kind of iPhone? How big is it? What condition is it in? Do you have the original box and do you have the original power supply and cables? And then once you answer all these questions, they're saying, okay, given that criteria, this is what we will pay you for it. Would you like us to send you a box? And they send you a box if you say yes, and the box is free. And then you pack your iPhone or whatever it is into the box and ship it back to them. Again, also free to you. When they get it, they look at it and they compare it to what you said it was. Does it have the cables? Is it in the same condition? Etc. Etc. If it all matches, they send you a check. If it doesn't match, they send you an email and say it doesn't match. And they explain why. And sometimes they'll say, and we'll pay you more because it's in better condition than you thought. Or we'll pay you less because it's in worse condition. But in either case, if the number isn't exactly what they originally told you it would be, you have the choice. You can say, yes, I'll accept you know, your revised offer or no, thanks. Send it back. Also free. So totally worth checking out gazelle.com. Find that pile of old stuff. You've got laying around maybe old video game units, who knows? And, uh, and go, you know, see if you can turn them into some cash and turn them into something else you actually want to use. Gazelle.com. All right, John, should we go to, should we go to Ari? Ooh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like that one because I got a different answer than, uh, than you provided. That's even better. Okay. Ari writes, I've noticed an activity monitor that HP device monitor is using 90% of my system resources and I can't get rid of it. There's no uninstall app that I can find or application that I can even find. If I force quit, it just keeps coming back. Okay. So I've seen this problem, not directly with HP monitor, although I think actually I have, but 
Occasionally, you're going to see this. And sometimes it's with an app that's not in your applications folder. And that can be sort of pesky. And so the trick is you've got to find where that app is. It definitely is there, but you've got to find where it is and then just delete it if you don't need it anymore. Activity Monitor here is going to be your friend. And, and I'm actually curious to hear your, your thoughts on this, John. But I will, I will continue with my own steamroller and then, and then we'll see what, uh, what you have to say. So in Activity Monitor, find the process and double-click on it or click the inspect, highlight it and click the Inspect button in the toolbar. On that screen, you've got three tabs. The one all the way to the right is called Open Files and Ports at or very near the top of this. this so this is going to show you a list of all the things that this app has open. Uh, at or near the top of that list is going to be the actual application file, and it's going to give you a path to it. It might say, you know, slash users, slash Dave, slash library, slash application support, slash HP, or something like that. And then you just got to go into the finder and follow that trail, and then force quit it from within Activity Monitor, and then throw it away. And that will get rid of it because that's the file that was running. It's not entirely elegant, but they didn't leave you with an elegant option, at least not one that I can think of. And so this is the way to do it. And that's, that's the way to find those apps. But at least that's my way. John? You know, I've seen this one too. So if you get an HP printer... Um, and I have one. It's the B8550. Very nice printer, but it comes with a disk uh, where you can install the HP software. And uh, as Ari noted, uh, they install a bit more beyond uh, the standard drivers and that they install all sorts of other garbage, including this thing. Now, the one observation that I have here, so he, he suggests that he's able to find the app and kill it, but it comes back like a zombie. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why I think that's happening. Oh. Uh, so one, okay, so that's why, I, yeah, I wanted to, to give a, a different facet on this. Yeah. So number one, so, so there are a number of ways you can launch applications, and I suspect what they did is that they did something uh, that doesn't make it easy to find. Um, normally, a lot of things will will put startup items, uh, if, if you go to your uh, users and groups, uh, login items, uh, that's an easy place to find stuff that launches on startup and to get rid of it. But sometimes they'll bury it. They'll bury it in the OS. And what it is is that they'll use, uh, I believe it's a, it's a launch D job. And what they'll do is put a plist file in a number of places. And, and the problem is, so, so your suggestion is good, Dave. Uh, what, I, what I suspect may happen, though, is that if they install it this way, which I think they did, uh, then what's going to happen is the console is going to get littered with these messages saying, hey, I can't find this to launch again. Hey, I can't find this to launch again. Because it's been set as a job that should always be running. That's a good point. So the, I told, the I told to look, you my method was inelegant. Yeah, well, it's, it's a method. But yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to result, it, it may result in cruft in the console. And this could happen with any app that you delete, especially if it's not deleted properly is the plist file that describes the uh, startup behavior may still be there and because it says always try to launch this you're you're going yeah you're going to get all this garbage in the console so where does that stuff live it typically lives i think in one of six places so it could either be in library slash launch agents launch daemons and I think startup items, though, I, I don't see much in that directory. So I think it's mainly either in your top-level library folder or your user library folder, which would be your home directory library. 
uh, you may see launch statements or launch agents. In that, you're going to see a bunch of plist files, and it should be pretty clear uh, that you can open it. But but it should be pretty clear which of any of those is launching this uh, HP app. Usually, it's within the name of it. Uh, if you get rid of that file, that will prevent. And actually, if you open the file, it should show you the path to the executable. And, and as Dave stated, it's not always in applications. The, the place that I've seen a lot of this stuff, including the HP garbage, uh, sorry, I'm calling it garbage, guys, but they really install all <laughs> this garbage. stuff that you don't. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I opted. What I did is actually, you know, I installed their software when I first got the printer, and I'm like, I don't need all this stuff. And, and I, it, so you look in, I think it's in application support is where a lot of apps will put these things. And I think when I did try to rip the HP app out, I think they did provide an uninstaller, but it was buried in the application support folder. So this you're also going to see. Probably in your home directory library, you're going to see an application support folder. And within that is going to be any stuff that's specific to an application that it needs that for whatever reason it doesn't want to put in the applications folder. And I think I did find an uninstaller. Ah. So so that is my answer to with certain apps to do a cleaner uninstall or at least to prevent the uh, or, or a place to look. Again, I think there was an HP folder, and I did see an uninstaller, but it was not. It was certainly not obvious that they even provided one. Right, right. So, okay, uh, I will add a little something to that. I would use your method first, frankly, um, because that's better. Uh, and then, in between using your method and my method, I would add run Lingon to check launch D. Right. Uh, you know. So, did you say Lingon? I didn't, uh, okay. but, but Lingon is a nicer way to see what's in these plist files and all of the, right. all of the settings. It, right. Yeah, it may not be clear what's happening if you just open the plist file. Right. So I think that yeah, I agree. That's a better way to get a view of what's because that's yeah that that Lingon views uh, shows you what's in all of the folders I just mentioned. I guess that's all it does. It's not doing anything else magic. That's where they're configured from. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, all right. You want to move down to follow-ups, John, or are there any uh, questions lingering that you want to uh, on the agenda that you want to do? Let's see. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's do some uh, some follow-ups. Yeah. Okay. Good. So uh, last show we talked about uh, various file transfer tr- services back in show three seventy two, and we got quite a few comments uh, specifically about this first one uh, called wetransfer.com. dot uh, and uh, I'm reading Trevor's email here, but there were countless dozens. Uh, he says it is a beautiful, both in service and in design, site for doing all the things you talked about on 372. It lets you send files up to two gigabytes in size to multiple email addresses. As far as I can see so far, there is no monthly or weekly or anythingly limit because there are ads. But the ads manifest as beautiful full-page photos from the advertising parties. The only knock against it is that it does use Flash, but I've had no problems thus far. I use this one always, just thought I could send them some traffic. So thanks, Trevor, and everyone. Yeah, this uh, this looks like a really great option. I'd never heard of that before. So thanks for thanks for telling us about that. Maybe I'll use that to send the show to to Michael today and uh, for the AAC conversion. That's Michael Johnston, of course, that we're talking about, and he's the one that does the AAC conversion. He does the We Have Communicators podcast, which also rocks. So check that out. It's all about iPhones and iPads and apps and fun stuff. Adam Christensen and Jeff Gamut usually join him. 
All right. Uh, also in that vein, did you check out uh, We Transfer yet, John? No. Okay. Uh, so also in that vein, Matt wrote, uh, he said, in reference to the discussion on how to send large files, for those in your audience who are particularly geeky, paranoid over what is stored outside of their control, or perhaps wants to brand their own domain, here are a couple of in-house solutions akin to you send it. Both are available as virtual machines that should be able to run on a Mac in Fusion from VMware with a little effort. Both support LDAP for authentication, which is great for organizations with Active Directory or Mac servers, and both come with a commerce with commercial support offerings offerings. One is from Zend.to, and it is actually a free open source solution. It's quite technical, and one needs to be familiar with the underlying Unix commands as it lacks a GUI. Documentation is adequate, so command line junkies shouldn't have many problems. I like how he said shouldn't have many problems. That's pretty mm-hmm. typical of anything you need to configure from the command line. Uh, it, and, and, you know, you're always going to run into something, but you shouldn't have many problems. I like that. And then the other one is from allardsoft.com. Uh, He says it's a commercial solution, but is quite reasonable for a limited number of users. In addition to supporting local files in the virtual machine, there's a version where files can be stored on Amazon's EC2. Uh, The product has a nice GUI, and I can personally recommend this as the organization I work for has used this extensively for a number of years. Awesome. Well, thanks, Matt. That's good stuff. Always good to to go geeky. Uh, John... You had an interesting thing show up this week. I did. I, that's what you said. That's what you told oh, me about. Oh, under under tips here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I don't know what it was. Um, this is something that I think you and I are going to have to to dig into. Okay. Um, so you know, I was taking some pictures. I've been, uh, you know, with the unseasonably warm weather here. Yeah, I've been trying to get a walk in almost every day and take pictures and I got the iFi card and you know I'll upload them to the computer and then import them in Aperture and all of a sudden I had repeated situations where once I got them into Aperture I wrote a little automator option I, I I would then start going through them to you know trim them down since not every photo is 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 one that I want to keep and Aperture would lock up rock solid it, I I would see a loading di- uh, indicator and a little spinning thing and then all of a sudden it's like the whole machine. Uh, sometimes I could get the mouse cursor, but the clock stopped. I mean, everything was wedged. Whoa. And I had to force shutdown. And I'm like, wow, this is really bad. That, so the yeah. first thing I thought is, well, maybe my Aperture library is corrupted. Now, the thing is, if you start up Aperture, there are multiple. Uh, the, if you hold down Alt and Option, it has a number of repair options. Uh, I think it's check permissions, uh, check structure, and then rebuild the whole darn thing. So I went through all three of those, and I still had problems with lockups. So first I was like, well, you know, I wonder if my hard drive is messed up. But then, you know, I, I thought back to when I had a problem like this in the past. And what I did, so I fired up Drive Genius, you know, ran a or ran this utility did a you know verify, and it said, eh, I don't, I don't think there are any problems, which is the message it gives. And I'm going to emphasize that it says, I don't, uh, I don't think there are any problems with this drive. The thing is, there was. So I figured, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to break out my pal Drive Genius, and I'm going to do a directory rebuild. And when I did that, oh, my gosh, the, the information that it gave me here. So it said, oh, by the way, when I was looking around here, you got an invalid volume file count, invalid volume directory count, and invalid volume free block count. And that the, the value that it should be it's the, and, and what it was, and it listed these numbers. And in some cases, they were quite different. 
And I was like, well, that must be it. Now, what concerns me, though, is that, you know, regular disutility didn't detect this. And then I'm also scratching my head how this rebuild operation knew the right value versus the wrong value. I, I think some of the directory stuff, that there's copies of it and that has not one but maybe two versions. I'm not exactly sure how it knows this. And actually, that's something I'd like to dig into, Dave. But it kind of bothered me that I checked it with the with disutility and also with Drive Genius, you know, just verifying it said everything's fine. But when I did a rebuild of my directory, these three problems, which are pretty, you, you saw the screenshot. I mean, these are big problems. Yeah. <laughs> if but you that's have an invalid file count. But so I think repair on either program. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Verify and repair on either program did not identify a problem. Is that cr- am I getting that right? Repair or rebuild did. Rebuild did, did a but rebuild, but, but verify. But did a not. verify did not, and wow. I think the verify is pretty much the same one that this utility uses. It steps through a few of the catalog structures and and looks for inconsistencies. Okay, but once I did the rebuild, it absolutely yelled at me saying, "Hey, you know your file count, directory count, and free block count are all messed up, so I'm going to fix them for you." And then once I did that, everything was okay. The other thing is, I thought I may have ha- may have had a actual bad block on the hard drive i'm coming to the conclusion that i probably don't okay so it certainly appeared that way because the machine was wedged yeah the, the only thing that leads me to believe it wasn't a bad block is that i would expect the, the whole machine to just lock up and fail here i still had control so although it's unusual because you know usually when you see the clock stop that indicates to me more a hardware level problem yeah that's just me so I seem yeah. to have solved it. I've done a couple of other imports, and uh, and everything seems to be okay. So uh, yeah, but I/O can cause har- what appear to be hardware level. I mean, it is a hardware problem, even if it's just file system corruption. Well, that, that's, well, that's what I'm thinking is yeah. that because the layout of stuff on the hard drive, the OS was under the wrong, it got wrong information. It could have been going in circles trying to find or do things that right. would never end. It, right. it was like in an endless loop, and it was getting all confused, and it never gave control back to to me, the user. Right, right. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, because yeah. my drive is pretty young. I mean, I use it pretty much every day, but uh, I, I wouldn't expect the drive to fail. Though I may want to think about an upgrade. Mm. Yeah, well, any, you know, drives, I, I agree with you. I wouldn't expect it to fail uh, yet, but, they, of course, they can fail at any time. So, All right. Uh, I, I will share this, although really all we're going to do is share it. We're going to tell you about a link and then share it. Uh, Kevin wrote, though I have four gigs of RAM on my MacBook, I only fire up Windows through Parallels and the Windows version of Microsoft Office if I absolutely have to. I don't have the Mac version of Office, and I really don't intend on buying it. After receiving an iTunes gift card for Christmas, I invested in Pages, finally, and am very happy. Uh, I know some of you probably like to save in Pages native format. This does not interest me at all. When you save a document for the first time in Pages, you can check a box to also save as a Word document. Pages really only wants to save in its own format. Yes, you can set it to be the default app for opening Word files. People have told me, well, Kev, you can just save in Pages and share it as a Word or PDF or export it when you really need to. Still, this wasn't acceptable to me. I wanted Pages to be a Word editor with no hassles, and that means saving as Word documents natively. And there's an answer. Snow Leopard users will need Xcode tools from their system DVD, and Lion users who don't have Xcode installed will need to download it free from the Mac App Store. But there are several steps you can go through. 
by editing plist files. And actually, you can edit plist files in uh, BB Edit. You can edit plist files, I believe, in Text Wrangler. So you may or may not eat, need Xcode uh, if all you need to do is edit plist files. But we'll and I got I got one I, I want to add because I've used yep. it as of late. Oh. It's a very nice utility. Plist yep. Edit Pro. Oh, there you go. The nice thing about this program, because we, we had someone who actually had a problem with some plist files, and I was trying to diagnose and confirm they were all screwed up. Yep. But a lot of these plist editors, if they if they don't see a nice, consistent structure, they'll just yell at you. Plist Pro, the one thing that it does in addition, it is it'll show you the raw contents of, of the plist file if it can't figure it out, which actually helped me determine that they... But no, it's a, it's a, nice, uh, it's a nice utility. Cool. Well, that's good. Awesome. Yeah, so... Uh, so get one of these plist editors, and then we'll send you a link. I'm not going to walk through the steps, but uh, but you, you you can go through these steps and edit a plist for pages that will make it save as Word uh, doc files by default, which is actually pretty cool. So for those of you interested, know, though, that there are some things that you can do in pages that don't have a direct correlation in Word files. So you possibly are giving up some some edge case func- functionality by not saving a pages version of your file but uh, but we'll send we'll post a link to this in the show notes and uh, and thanks Kevin for sending that along that's that's good stuff all right let me uh let me see if I can find the band here John he listed a pro uh, it's from the same people that make iPhoto library manager uh, fat cat software oh really and that's it's, cool. Uh, it's thirty bucks with a with a, a trial. I think a free free trial. Cool. Well, awesome. I think that that brings us toward the end here, John. You can hear the band, right, John? Yes, sir. Okay, good. I never know with this mobile setup. It's obviously not the one I use every week, so I never know if I'm just hearing things or if they're really there. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the email address that you can use to email us your questions, your tips, your follow-up comments. We love them all. We really do love to hear from you. And so feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the place to email. I'm not going to use that, Dave. I'm going to use feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's awesome. Uh, You can also call us if you are so inclined. And the number is 206-666-GEEK, which John is... Four three three five. You can also, and actually, uh, been helping a few people with uh, some questions. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash MacGeekGab. Absolutely, yeah, that's a fun place to be. Uh, we've got, like you said, we've got a good little community kind of cooking over there. Uh, you can uh, Skype us to MacGeekGab if you like. Uh, do not send text Skypes like instant messages there because we don't check that often. Uh, but if you send us a voicemail at our Skype account, that we will get uh, in our normal flow of, of checking things. So Skype us voice only, please, to MacGeekGab. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacGeekGab. Twitter.com slash John F. Braun for him. Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton for me. Slash Pilot Beat for Pilot Beat. And of course, slash Mac Observer for all the headlines over there. Anything else here, John? I think that's, that's pretty much every way you can possibly get in touch with us. Awesome. Uh, you can also run us down. We're going to be at Macworld Expo in a couple of weeks. We're doing a Mac Geek Gab. Oh, let me pull up the schedule here. 
I think there's something wacky going on with audio on my machine, so hopefully this is working. Uh, let's see. We are doing a Mac Geek Gab on Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. Uh, at Macworld Expo, so that would be Friday the 27th. Uh, the day before, on Thursday the 26th, I'm doing a Backing Up Your Mac uh, session at 11 o'clock. And then John and I will be... This is awesome. At... Uh, at 3 p.m., we're going to be at the Smile booth. So I know a lot of times uh, I'll, I'll finish either one of my sessions or we'll finish a Mac Geek Gab. And, you know, there's quite a few folks that have some questions or just want to say hi. And I love that. We both do. But the problem is these rooms where they're doing these things are booked, right? So I've only got 10 minutes to get out of there and 10 minutes for the, whoever's presenting next to come in and set up. So I really usually don't have time to chit-chat Uh if you come to the Smile booth, we are there for an hour. They're going to chain us to the booth, and, mm-hmm. and and we're just there to chit-chat. So it's a perfect time to come by. So that's 3 p.m. on Thursday, the uh, the 26th, so the first day of the show. Oh, so, right. Uh, and then what else? Uh, Friday, Mac Roundtable. I don't know if you're sitting in on that. Yep, at 10 a.m.? Yes. Yep. Okay, and that's, that's all your favorite, I would think, uh, Mac podcasters. I, I would agree place. with that. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, 5 o'clock on Thursday night, uh, uh, the, the Macworld rapid fire thing they're doing, which is like kind of like Ignite, where there's, I don't know, 15 or 20 of us that each are doing five minutes on one topic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my favorite way of uh, doing saved searches, which, of course, I've talked about on the podcast here before, but I'll do it with, with visual aids. And uh, But... Everybody else is doing something different, and it's just going to be one after the other, rapid-fire style. So that that starts at 5 and probably go, I don't know, an hour and a half or so. So that should be fun. It should be an interesting thing. And then uh, Friday night, Cirque de Mac at Macworld Expo. And, uh, of course, if you're looking for tickets, follow us on, on Twitter. Uh, ask us. Sometimes you yeah. catch us in the right mood. So. Yeah, or if you see us uh, on the show floor, yeah, we'll have, have, we'll have one paper or two tickets there, too. tickets on us. Yeah. yeah, old school, old school. Nothing wrong with that. All right, the All right, well, you got a plane to catch, right? What, what's or, I do? What, what else? Uh, uh, what's that? You're, you're, you're uh, I was continue. Uh, go, go. Uh, you got to finish. Is it okay to continue? <laughs> this is weird because we got a little more latency in our Skype connection than we're used to, John. So, uh, so that's why we're running into each other a little more. But that's okay. Uh, so we've thanked Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. Uh, we wanted to thank Cashfly for the bandwidth. Uh, and then, of course, in the podcast marketplace this month is uh, the A2 speakers, of course, from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebone Software, uh, Text Expander from Smile, and, of course, Gazelle. And we would be remiss if we did not encourage you to go ahead and support our premium show. 25 bucks for six months, two extra episodes a month, and you get to support your two favorite geeks. Which is good, because I think the audio is acting really weird with the, with the theme song here. So anyway, we will be back on Monday, but between now and then, don't get caught. Made up.